from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. When I became an EMT in high school, one of my history teachers who was an EMT in LA, he looked me square in the eye and he said, I know you're going to get out there and you're going to do great things. He says, you just better remember one thing. You're okay. Your patient is not. And that has stuck with me my entire career. Disasters, earthquakes, pandemics, hurricanes, floods, fire, nuclear accidents, poisoned water, heart attacks, drug overdoses, strokes, car accidents, all common issues that don't necessarily occur in convenient, clean, or even accessible locations. One thing is constant, however, our assumption that in such an event, emergency care will be available to us. We even take for granted that that emergency medical care will be organized, practiced, and prepared to deal with an onslaught of critical patients at a moment's notice. How does that work exactly? Well, in our continuing series with top hospital Johns Hopkins, we ask that they give us access to a doctor that specializes in disaster emergency medicine. We take for granted that they will be ready. Well, on today's show, we're talking to the guy who makes that a reality. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. And first, of course, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Are you still feeling the COVID starting to wane a little bit? Definitely starting to wane. At, at, at my facility, just found out today where we had 173 COVID patients in January. Today, we have seven. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, we got an interesting guest today. Our special guest, Dr. Matthew Levy, is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Department of Emergency Medicine. He leads Hopkins Division of Special Operations, which provides for central command and coordination of emergency medicine operation. And Dr. Levy is board certified in emergency medicine and a subspecialty certified in EMS. He's the guy who sets up the teams and strategies that we don't even know we need until, God forbid, we need them. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Levy. How you doing? Oh, good afternoon or greetings. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me and for that very warm introduction. So Division of Special Operations, what exactly is that? Sounds more military than civilian. Well, it's structured, is what I would say. And, and indeed, our Division of Special Operations at Johns Hopkins, the division really got its roots nearly two decades ago in being the central focus for all of the out-of-hospital medicine activities that Johns Hopkins Emergency Medicine oversees. And that includes the interfacility transport program. It includes some of our operational medical programs in support of tactical and law enforcement medicine, special event medicine, and a few other topics. And and. and Initially had some roots in disaster medicine, which has also grown into its own unique and, and blossoming, flourishing specialty area or focus area. So we work closely with some of our disaster colleagues as well nowadays. So are you coordinating and training the guys on the line, the guys who show up first, those first responders that we're so appreciative for? Well, it certainly is a team effort. I would say that I'm one of the people doing that training. In my role as an EMS medical director, I certainly work very closely with our EMS educators and helping to design, implement, and facilitate the delivery of that educational content. And yes, I do spend a good portion of my time as an educator, not only educating our physician colleagues, but also educating our, our pre-hospital emergency medical services clinicians in those life-saving conditions, recognition, treatment, and management. So I don't understand, though, because obviously you're handling all the ops relative to Johns Hopkins. 
But every hospital has their own emergency room, or most hospitals have an emergency room. And how do you interface and coordinate their process with your process? It seems like institutions that generally work in silos now suddenly have to coordinate. How does that take place? Well, it's such a great question. And and to answer it, we have to take a bigger step back and look at how emergency medical care in the U.S. is currently delivered nowadays. And we'd like to think that there's one national EMS system. The end user calls 911. They ask for help. And we're very fortunate in the United States that the vast majority of the U.S. is covered by 911 coverage. And the rest happens by magic. When in fact, what really is occurring is we have a system of systems. And these systems are oftentimes designed, implemented, and operated at the regional level. Maybe in large metropolitan areas, that's occurring at the city or the county level. But in other parts of the country, it's groupings of cities and counties and communities. And sometimes they're regulated at the state level, but more often they're regulated at that local community level or their regional level. And within that comes this network of uh, specialty assets, hospital emergency departments, trauma centers, stroke centers, all the types of facilities that we want to be able to get these patients with very high acuity conditions to. And, and so that coordination, that planning is guided by expert recommendations from, from professional organizations like the American Heart Association, as well as other organizations who help accredit these centers. But ultimately, to your point, uh, Stephen, it's really a local implementation. And so when you have a city that has a dozen hospitals in it, that those facilities have to work together and have to ensure that they're going to collaborate with that EMS system to get the patient the best care possible and to get the patient to the closest appropriate facility. Are you busy coordinating with police departments, fire departments, local municipalities, government officials? How do you manage all this? Yes. It really is a collaborative effort, as you would imagine, as you mentioned, some of the different disciplines that are present at the table. Uh, a lot of it comes down to how EMS is, is operationalized in, in your neck of the woods, if you will. In many parts of the country, the predominant delivery system for EMS is through the fire department. And so in those cases, you have fire rescue agencies that also spend a big portion of their time delivering EMS care. And so in that model, there's coordination and there's overlap with other essential missions and services to the public. In other parts of the country, it's done through a third-party model where you have an independent government organization or a local government contract with a private vendor to provide that emergency medical services care. What's interesting is that any and all of those models can work. Any and all those models cannot work very well also without proper oversight, proper planning, and execution of those plans. So it really comes down to, as I mentioned a moment ago, implementation, and also comes down to a a degree of coordination. Now, the larger the system, the more complex inputs and outputs you have, the more players you have at the table. But at the end of the day, and this is something that we talk about, and Stephen, although I've never met you personally before, I would imagine with your background, you, you might agree or feel free to disagree. If we keep the patient at the center of what we want to do. And the center of the mission and the center of what we're about is providing the best patient care, regardless of where that emergency is, regardless of what resources we do we don't have. If we anchor on providing the best patient care possible, the rest has a way of figuring itself out. And so when we build these systems, that's it's one of those paradigms that, that I believe very strongly in. It's also one of the ones we, we try to teach. And when we teach our EMS clinicians, our EMTs and our paramedics about how to deliver high quality patient care under sometimes suboptimal conditions, we really try to remind them that it's about that patient. And, and that's true on a daily basis. 
We can talk about one that sometimes gets really challenging when we have resource-limited situations. We've experienced that this past year with COVID. We've experienced it during disasters. But then we have to kind of look at how do we do the greatest good for the greatest number. And that's a whole other layer of complexity. I wonder if you could take us for a little tour about how things have progressed with emergency medical care COVID-wise during this past year. Maybe you could tell us what you've learned, what treatment has changed and how you've handled the emergency side of this pandemic? It's a great question. Certainly, we continue to learn every day. There was so much we didn't know earlier on about COVID, and we drew from metaphoric experiences and prior experiences, including the H1N1 pandemic that occurred in, I guess, 2009, and then more recently, the SARS and and MERS coronavirus pandemic, and then also recent experiences with other highly infectious pathogenic conditions such as Ebola. And we had to start making certain assumptions very early on in COVID. And Steve, I'm sure you guys did the same thing in the ICU and and about about how do we safely care for people? How do we minimize the spread? And and one of the things that we started doing very early on, and many EMS Rams did this around the country, was we began, we started at the start, and that started with the 911 call and asking the 911 operators to ask some additional questions to help understand, uh, is this person displaying signs or symptoms of potential COVID-19 illness. And that would get them identified as what we call a PUI or person under investigation for COVID-19 illness. And to give the EMS clinicians a heads up and a warning that they could be walking into a potentially dangerous situation. So how did you advise them in that kind of situation? How did they stay safe while actually executing on this job? One of the things that we did very early on, and there was variability in this across the country, is everyone implemented uh, higher levels of PPE, personal protective equipment, to be worn at all times. Now, it's one thing to wear a gown and a glove and masks in, for me to do it in the emergency department, for Steve to do it in the ICU. It's another thing to do it inside an ambulance or in someone's living room. And so one of the things that we started seeing, our EMS clinicians are very talented and very smart, and we can build processes, protocols, and algorithms, and they'll follow them. But we began to see some of the unintended consequences of that. And and let me give an example. Take the emergency that is cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac arrest, when someone spontaneously goes into a lethal arrhythmia and their heart is no longer pumping and they need immediate CPR and immediate defibrillation. And for every minute that their body is in that state where they don't get those resources, their chance of survival goes down by 10%. Well, if it takes those EMS clinicians an extra few minutes to get all that PPE on and to safely get into the house, that's negative energy. That's like the, the consequence of that, the unintended consequence of that was, was actually quite huge. But we have to protect our responders. We have to protect our personnel. You know, I, I just recently looked at the, the death numbers of EMS personnel in the country who died of COVID-19 illness uh, in the past year. And they are some of the unsung heroes of this pandemic, as are so many others. But what I would say is that the problem got even more amplified. Because if you remember early in COVID-19, um, Steve, I don't know how it was in your, in, in your hospital. I could tell in mine, census dropped really, really quick. We couldn't get people to come to the hospital who needed to come to the hospital. And our rates of heart attacks, of ST elevation MIs, of, a, of an emergency where there's a blocked coronary artery, those rates went way down. And the rates of cardiac arrest went up. That's not coincidental. People were afraid to come to the hospitals. So people were afraid to call 911 early on because they didn't want to get sick at the hospital, something that we had to work very hard from a public education campaign to reassure the public that, no, if you're having an emergency, we want you to come in. So Matt, wouldn't every AMT have to arrive on scene assuming that there was COVID in a house? 
Well, it's interesting that you frame it that way because it quickly became that way. Early in COVID-19, we were still asking questions about had you traveled to a hotspot area or had you had known contact with a COVID-19 positive person or someone under investigation. And I'm not a public health expert, but I've learned a lot this year with the intent of trying to still isolate and contain and mitigate this. But once we began experiencing community spread of COVID-19 illness, the scenario that you described, Bill, is exactly correct. At that point, everybody is presumed potentially infected and there's all these metaphor cliches of during the pandemic, we had to pivot. We had to change again our operating construct and say, okay, from here on in, the paramedics that work under my medical direction, we said, we want them wearing an N95 mask on anytime they're coming in contact with a patient in eye protection. And we took those measures because we couldn't tell early on. And the symptomatology of who was going to be positive became so broad. It could have been someone with a febrile respiratory illness, which was pretty pathognomonic or pretty typical, or it could have been someone with a runny nose. And it was very hard to tell who was truly COVID positive. What we're witnessing now, and you tell me whether you're seeing it as well, now that the surge, at least in our area, has really subsided, the acuity level is extreme with multi-system organ issues that we have not seen before. I mean, we always see patients here and there with multi-system disease, but the numbers of people who are coming in with complex medical issues that quickly turn to renal failure or STEMIs and non-STEMIs, various forms of the heart attacks, as I'm describing, and strokes, they seem to be at a much higher number, as if these were people who let their health go for the past year And now they're suddenly flooding into the hospital once they tip over their threshold. Are you seeing that more in the EMS system or is this just something locally that I'm seeing just in my region? You know, I certainly wouldn't dispute what you're saying. I think I've had similar observations. I think of it somewhat akin to something that we've probably seen in our clinical practice, which is no one wants to be in the hospital over the holidays. So everybody tries to stay home. And then after the holidays is when we get really busy and everyone who tried to kind of hold off and and could no longer do so. And I think while that's probably a crude metaphor, I think the principle is probably similar here. We saw a decline in overall EMS call volume, at least in my region, over the past year. And that call volume is starting to pick back up and normalize. But indeed, it seems as though the acuity, at least it certainly feels that way, is is getting back up there, is getting higher. One of the things that we also saw, which I experienced it firsthand during the, the height of the pandemic, particularly over the winter, was as people were still home and kind of socially isolating and trying their best to adhere to public health recommendations, there was a lot less traffic on the roadways. And I saw and respond to some of the worst motor vehicle collisions in my career, because I guess people were driving a lot faster. And that's my own observation. Right. Um, I, you know, I noticed that as well, just because, you know, with impunity, they weren't going to be stopped by the police because police were afraid to stop people for fear of COVID. And so people felt that they could just speed and they were suddenly on the American Audubon going just as fast as they wanted to go. Okay, guys, we're going to take about a 30 second break. And when we come back, Matt, I'd like to dig into the process that EMT goes through when they arrive on a scene and get that illustration from you. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. 
And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcode.com slash a moment of your time. So I wonder, Matt, before we dig into process, could you define the different types of individuals, EMS, EMT, and tell us what their role is in the process? So EMS is the system. The emergency medical services is a system that is comprised of human beings and equipment and technologies to save lives. Within that system, there are a variety of levels of training, certification, and licensure. The most common level of EMS clinician or emergency medical services personnel in the country is someone that's called an EMT or an emergency medical technician. And on average, these individuals have around 120 to 160 hours of training. It's the equivalent of about a college semester's course. And their scope of practice and knowledge includes CPR, do some basic airway management, how to ventilate somebody with a bag valve mask resuscitator, how to deliver a baby, how to control severe bleeding, how to immobilize someone and safely transport them to the hospital and the basic operations of an ambulance. There are other variant levels of an, an intermediate type levels of EMS provider, but keeping it big and, and simple, the other very common level of EMS clinician or provider that staffs these ambulances and, and helicopters for that matter across the country would be a paramedic. And in order to be a paramedic, you have to first be an EMT. And paramedics is an EMT who's gone through about the equivalent of a thousand to fifteen hundred hours of training in all aspects of advanced cardiac life support and the recognition and diagnosis or field interpretation of a medical emergency and the advanced interventions. These folks can do things like inserting breathing tubes to secure someone's airway, to put in IVs, to give a host of different eye medications to stabilize someone having an emergency and to deliver a variety of types of other interventions, including especially types of defibrillation or pacing someone's heart. So these folks really are experts in the resuscitation of people outside the hospital. The other group that I do want to specify and clarify is there are emergency medicine physicians. These are physicians, these are doctors who've graduated medical school and have gone and done a residency in the field of emergency medicine. They are then board certified in emergency medicine and staff many of the emergency departments, if not the vast majority across the country. There are other folks who are not emergency medicine trained who also staff those front lines, particularly in smaller hospitals. And, and by no means is that meant to deflate or to minimize their role. My specialty practice is in that of emergency medical services medicine. So after doing a residency in emergency medicine, folks can then go on to do additional training, an additional time called a fellowship in emergency medical services, which is really focusing on how to do many of the things we've talked about already oversee, run, facilitate emergency medical services systems and how to practice out-of-hospital medicine. And that represents the highest level of emergency medical services specialty that exists in the country. There are a couple other levels, but for the sake of simplicity, I would stop there. Are these fields properly funded? Is there enough of a political 
and governmental dedication to the field that we need? Is it working? Is it a mess? Where are we? I think the answer is, it's not a yes-no answer. Certainly, we could do a lot more with a lot more funding is the easy answer. What I would say is that historically, EMS has not been very well funded. Most EMS programs operate based upon a billing and reimbursement structure that was intended and designed with the recognition that ambulances were just a service, a transportation service to move a patient from point A to point B, not a highly sophisticated, mobile, in some cases, intensive care capable environment capable of delivering that level of care. So certainly there is a need for greater funding. I I will say specifically regarding medical direction and the physician oversight of, of EMS, that historically had been very poorly funded on average across the country. And it wasn't very long ago that many medical directors served in their roles as a community service and didn't even get a salary. I mean, Steve, imagine you know working in the ICU to serve your community at a voluntary level in addition to your other practice in pulmonary medicine or in another one of your other disciplines. I mean, it's the ask nowadays. It's like, wow, that's a lot to ask of people. But it wasn't very long ago that that's where this evolved from. So again, we're moving in the right direction, but boy, do we, have, we have some way to go. Is funding local or national or a combination of both? Yeah, most EMS systems are funded locally. The reimbursement structure is usually set by at the federal level through Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement amounts for ambulance transports. But those reimbursement amounts, you know, we're talking about a, you know hundreds of dollars per ambulance transport. That's not usually a lot to, to sustain these operations. That helps augment the operation. It doesn't actually completely sustain it. Most EMS programs do receive local funding. In some cases, they're funded better than others. And with that comes the ability to innovate, uh, to implement cutting-edge technologies. Uh, but there are plenty of places where the rate-limiting step is their lack of funding to do more. So I can't help but bring up the difficult subject. I want to talk about insurance for just a minute, because this is one of those cases where the better the job that you do and the better the job that the EMTs do, the more it costs the insurance companies. So it must kind of keep the two at loggerheads a little bit. Are you having challenges there? By no means am I an expert in healthcare economics, but from my perspective, what I would say is that EMS has actually been in some ways a victim of this in a different manner because there are only two or three levels of reimbursement that EMS programs can bill for, bill insurance or bill Medicare for. So you quickly reach that cap and it's just the rest of it is just part of the service. It's part of the public safety service that's delivered. For example, if a patient is in the hospital and Steve and I are taking care of them and we have to put a central line in or put a breathing tube in, each of those things are billable procedures that because there's risk, there's expertise, there's sophistication that needs to do that. That's not necessarily the way that it works in EMS billing, where you bill for either a basic life support level of care or an advanced life support level of care, and there are some echelons in there. So it is a bit of a challenge. The opportunity, I think, that we're seeing now, and there's a national initiative, it's a pilot initiative that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, has implemented that's called ET3. And this is an initiative that started before the pandemic. And this is the Emergency Treatment Transport Initiative, where they're looking at allowing EMS agencies to be reimbursed even when they don't transport someone. So it used to be that the only way these EMS programs could actually be reimbursed is if they transport someone to a hospital. That, to me, seems like a flip logic. What that then does is it then de-incentivizes to not transport people. 
or to not transport them to, to other locations, such as alternative destinations, urgent care centers, other places that if the patient meets the appropriate triage criteria, could safely and effectively get their care in a manner that's both appropriate and also fiscally prudent. Well, which is why the consumer often goes to an emergency room for something that really isn't an emergency. Yeah, I am always interested when I speak with my patients in the emergency department, you know, we have a finite amount of time that we can really spend at the bedside with our patients because it's just the acuity and the volumes. But when I talk to my patients and I ask them some questions about, you know, do you have a primary care doctor? Oh, yes, I do. I said, okay, have you talked to your primary care doctor about the condition that brought you in today? In in circumstances when it's not a time critical or high acuity emergency, to your point, some of them don't necessarily recognize that, oh, wow, I could have called my doctor for some of this. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that we don't want them coming to the emergency department if they need to be, but another example of how the pandemic has really revolutionized care delivery and it's really been a catalyst, I think, has sprung us forward probably a decade or two has been the use of telemedicine, where people can now have a televisit with their doctor from the comfort of their own home and then decide what the right intervention or right diagnostic workup is. So I imagine there's a moment of real stress that occurs when an EMT has to make a decision about, do we put this poor fella in the back of the ambulance or do we call for air transport? Tell me about how you train people for that kind of decision. So one of the things that we do really well in EMS is we try to bring structure to chaos and we try to bring an organized and methodological approach to a complex and chaotic and potentially life-threatening situation to the point that the same assessment that I do, the same fundamental assessment that I do now as a practicing emergency physician for over a decade and a half is based upon the roots that I learned as an EMT 25 years ago because it works. And so what we teach, and it starts off in the classroom, it starts off with an assessment of the safety of the environment. Is there a potential for harm for the clinician, for the EMS personnel responding in? And then they use a very structured approach at looking for the life threats first, severe bleeding, an airway issue, someone's in respiratory distress or circulatory issue like shock or cardiac arrest. And then they build and they start fixing the fixable problems as they find them in that order. And then they build upon that. And then very quickly, they are then able to fill in the blanks of additional information, what we would call the history of present illness or what's going on at that moment in time that led to that emergency happening and the patient's background and medical history. And all this is done very sequentially for two reasons. Number one, to be time efficient. And we'll get back to that in a second. But number two, so that we can avoid variability and avoid unintentionally missing a potential injury illness because there is no rule that says patients can only have one emergency going on at once. And we do see that particularly in traumatically injured patients. So based upon that assessment and the interventions that are done, then they need to make a decision about where this person needs to go to get the care they need. And that decision is informed based upon geography. It's based upon weather. It's based upon a variety of things. And how do they get that person to the closest appropriate facility, which is the doc terrain that we teach and we operate under, the closest appropriate facility for the emergency that they're having? And once that decision is reached, it then becomes a means of, okay, how do we facilitate that transportation? If it's going to be many, many miles or there's going to be severe traffic or other barriers that's going to translate to time delay, the right answer may be to utilize an air asset such as a helicopter that can quickly move that patient from the scene to that definitive care. Alternatively, the answer might be we're going to go to the closest appropriate facility by ground or closest facility because this patient is so unstable, we just have to get them stabilized and then secondarily transfer them. 
Are you familiar with the Israeli drone system for EMS delivery? And could you speak to that a little bit? And, and is that something that could be translatable to a country as expansive as ours with a population of 332 million versus a tiny geographical parameter? If you're referring to the drone delivery of automatic external defibrillators program, is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Super exciting and super hopeful technology that is now realistic and, and is now within reach. Let me come back to that in a second. The other really neat thing that is done in Israel, there's a program called United Hatsala, which is a smartphone-based program that uses vol medical volunteers who are trained and equipped and given medical bags to serve as first responders before the first responders get there because there's so much traffic and roadway congestion in Israel that they have a delayed response time in some parts of the country, no different than we have here. So they're able to use smartphone technology and, if you will, a civilian reservist corps who's agreed to participate and be medically trained and carry some medical equipment to slice that time down. The enemy here is time. The enemy, when we have one of these emergencies, is time. And that time directly translates to the absence or how long our body tissue is going without oxygen or perfusion for whatever the emergency is. If it's a stroke, it's how long the brain is going without oxygen. If it's a heart attack, it's how long the heart is going without oxygen. If it's someone who's bleeding on the street, it's how long they're bleeding for before someone stops the bleeding and can allow circulation to resume. So as we look towards exciting, innovative, and disruptive technologies, and disruptive technologies are a good thing because they force us to kind of rethink things. Drone delivery is one example. I think that we will see more of that in the US. I, I know that there's a lot of interest in it. There are some complexities with what are referred to as these unmanned aerial systems or these UAS systems. The term drone has kind of an uncomfortable connotation for some people. But how do we leverage technologies to do that where we can get that life-saving piece of equipment out to the scene of the emergency as quickly as possible? You know, one of the very first research projects I engaged in when I was in graduate school was my graduate research project. We did an analysis of the location of cardiac arrests in a community and the location of AEDs. And what we found is that the lines crisscrossed quite literally. The locations with the most AEDs, uh, automated external defibrillators, those things that hang on the wall that you pull them off the wall and someone's having an emergency and they can deliver a shock right away. And that combined with CPR can really help save a lot of lives, but it's got to be done quickly. Well, we found that the location of those things was inversely coordinated with where the cardiac arrests were occurring. You guys know where the most common cardiac location for cardiac arrests are? In the home. So there is a movement afoot to have more AEDs in homes. There's certainly, we've looked at and toyed with the idea of, boy, could we work with the automobile industry on having an AED that is part of your vehicle's purchase? And it's just, it's equipment, you know, you have it in the car. There are some really neat technologies that are coming online that are linking AEDs and making them what's called smart AEDs, which will actually, instead of it just hanging on the wall like a fixture, if there's a cardiac arrest nearby, that AED would have the ability to be monitoring the 911 system and, and can alert and say, someone take me to this location using technology that we already have that's in all of our pockets on our smartphones. So drone delivery is very exciting, Steve. It's one piece of this. But really what it comes down to is how do we engage bystanders, engage the people around the emergency 
to do something, to see something and do something. And if I can just embellish for one minute, I want to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, which is the Stop the Bleed Initiative. Because the Stop the Bleed Initiative is a program that I've been very involved with at the national level. And Stop the Bleed is is a program that we've really focused on, not just the actions of recognizing life-threatening hemorrhage and what to do about it, but also empowering the lay public to do something. And you know what we find is that the same people who are going to stop to do CPR or or who are going to stop to put an AED on or stop to hold pressure on a bleeding wound, these are the same people who are going to help jumpstart your car in the parking lot or change your flat tire. These are these civically minded altruistic people. They're the helpers. So how do we empower the helpers to help and how do we use technologies to do that more uh, more readily? Interesting. Interesting. I wonder, Matt, I've had the opportunity to visit Johns Hopkins a number of times, a beautiful facility in in a nice part of Baltimore. And I have to ask you, you know, Baltimore is an interesting town. There are some areas of absolute beauty and there's some really difficult areas of Baltimore. I wonder, could you share with us an experience or two that you had in Baltimore that really was a deep challenge and, and had to do with some of the areas of Baltimore that need some cleaning up? And I'm sure you've been in some interesting situations there. Yeah, it's it's a hard question to be quite candid. I was not born and raised in Baltimore, but I've been here more than half my life. It is my home. And Baltimore is a very special place. People who who find their way to Baltimore for work or academia and who live here uh, have great pride in it. But Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods like many other East Coast cities. And the disparities in healthcare are a huge challenge. You have life expectancies that can vary upwards of of a decade based upon zip codes in a small area. And that's, you know, some of those challenges that we face in Baltimore revolve around a variety of issues that are finally okay and socially acceptable to talk about from systemic racism through healthcare inequities, through years and years of mistrust that that is rooted from someplace. And it's likely from experiences and all those things come together and find themselves in the ER sometimes not just the ER and my hospital, but any ER across the country, because our emergency rooms, our emergency departments are society's safety net. It doesn't matter to me how many zeros in your paycheck and in what side of the decimal point those zeros are. When you walk in that ER, I'm taking care of you like you're my family because that's, that's my oath and that's what I'm going to do and that's what my colleagues are going to do. You ask any emergency physician what the hardest part of their job is, they will almost certainly tell you it's it's telling the parent a parent that their child has died. If I never have to do it again, it'll be too soon. It is one of the hardest parts of my job. And how and why and by what means that happened, whether it's intentional violence or un, unintentional mishap or an accident or a fluke thing, it, it, it's a tragedy nonetheless. But it is one of the hardest things that we have to deal with in emergency medicine. And I would say that that, that isn't necessarily unique to, to my institution or my city, but it's, it's a tribute to the hardworking emergency physicians that are manning these front lines. And you're right. You don't know what's going to come through that door. And I find myself driving to work on my clinical shifts, going through a little bit of a meditation process and preparing myself for what those next eight or 10 hours might look like. And knowing that I am there and I think back to some of my earliest career mentors. When I became an EMT in high school, one of my history teachers who was an EMT in LA, I'm not from LA, but he was an EMT in LA before moving to the East Coast. He looked me square in the eye and he said, I know you're going to get out there and you're going to do great things. He says, you just better remember one thing. You're okay. Your patient is not. And that has stuck with me my entire career because we're there to take care of others. That being said, 
violence, the trauma associated with violence is, I think, one of the things that, that maybe some listeners are envisioning right now. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the gunshot wounds and the assaults. It has to do with access to care, preventative medicine, preventing diseases like diabetes, obesity, dealing with nutrition, dealing with education, mentorship. It's all of these things that need to happen to unravel this very complex web that has been woven in America's urban environments. Well, Dr. Matthew Levy, thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll come back because I have a funny feeling we just touched on the absolute outer shell of this subject. There's lots for us to talk about. Thank you for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Matt, how can people follow you? My Twitter hashtag is at Dr. Matt Levy, D-R-M-A-T-T-L-E-V-Y. I'm on there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. My email address is just my last name, Levy, L-E-V-Y, at J-H-M-I.E-D-U. So those are my big ones. Matt, thanks for being with us today. And of course, Dr. Steve, as always, my good friend, thank you for doing this. We really appreciate it. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Thanks for joining. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.